Sepsis, or the infection causing sepsis, starts before a patient goes to the hospital in nearly 87% of cases. Sepsis is a medical emergency. If you or your loved one has an infection that's not getting better or is getting worse, act fast. Get medical care immediately. Ask your healthcare professional, could this infection be leading to sepsis? And if you should go to the emergency room, learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. Let's Fix Work is proudly sponsored by Ultimate Software. Human resources, payroll, talent management, they've got it all. Please visit ultimatesoftware.com to learn more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. On today's show, I've got behavioral economist and New York Times and USA Today bestselling author, Dr. Daniel Crosby. In the first part of the show, we gossip about HR ladies and discuss the psychology behind why people do crazy stuff at industry conferences. In the second part of the show, we discuss why knowledge isn't enough and why human beings behave against our own best interests. I love this conversation. I love Dan Crosby, and I hope you do too. So sit tight, and I'll be right back with more of Dr. Daniel Crosby and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken, and so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Dan Crosby, welcome to Let's Fix Work. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, well, first of all, my audience may or may not know you. And so can we start off with you sharing your bona fides? Who are you? Why are you here? Give us your Admiral Stockdale speech. Okay. Well, I am a psychologist by education, a clinician by education. I went to school to be a shrink and to have you lie on my chaise lounge and tell me about how your parents screwed your life up. But about three years into that, I got tired of it. I got burned out of it. And so I transitioned into the world of work. And so I I started out in applying psychological principles to OD and selection and leadership development. For about the last seven or eight years, I've been applying it to a small subset of that world, which is behavioral economics and just trying to understand how we make decisions around money. So I'm a psychologist. And the best part about being a psychologist is since everything is human behavior, we can just kind of be eclectic and I can get to have my hands in a lot of pots. You know, Dan, you and I met almost a decade ago. If I have my timeline right, if I went back and checked the records, I think that's right on the money. And we met at a time when the economy wasn't doing very well and people were unemployed and this thing called blogging was in vogue. Do you remember those days? I do. I remember those days well. Now, refresh my memory. Did you have a blog or were you just blog adjacent, hanging out with bloggers? I had a blog, but it was neglected. Like most blogs at that time and since, it was neglected. I've always been more of a book writer. I've always felt like blogging was sort of putting my hard work into the ether. So I've tried to focus my writing more on on books. So yeah, my, my blogs have never been, you know, as punk rock as yours or as thorough. Well, you know, we're always more punk rock in our own mind than we really are. And I remember the world of blogging when you entered it was interesting because people were trying to get book deals. And I believe you had already written your book, which if I'm not mistaken, was You're Not That Great. Was that Mm -hmm. the book? 
that was my first book, but that was more or less self-published. I mean, it was one of those sort of hybrid models. I'm not willing to call that a book deal, but yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, I was taking a similar path, right? I had sort of semi self-published this book to try and build some buzz. How did that buzz go? You got invited to all sorts of cool events, right? And you made a million dollars. Is that how that went? <laughs> well, well, my check should be coming. I get, I get one check a year from that book and it routinely, I don't mean to brag, but routinely I can take my family out for a nice dinner and that whole check is gone. <laughs> <laughs> to like what? Red Robin? <laughs> no, no, like sushi. Nice, nice. It's, it's a nice sushi dinner for a family of five. So that's, that's yeah. how much money I make a year on that book. Well, good. I remember at that time, you and I connected because we were out there in the world trying to just be somebody. I don't know how to describe it, what we were doing back then. And we would connect and commiserate because we would meet at these conferences or meet at these HR events. And I had no love of the world of human resources. And you were really only peripherally related to human resources. And we were surrounded by people who would come together at these conferences and let their freak flag fly. I don't know how else to describe it. How would you describe it? Okay. So I worked on Wall Street for the last, what, seven and a half, eight years. And I can't tell you how much more debauched and freaky HR conferences are <laughs> than hedge fund conferences. Like, don't ever let anyone tell you that oh. the super wealthy, like asset managers and Wall Street types are the crazy ones. It is 100% HR. I have been in both worlds and can testify <laughs> that HR runs the far freakier conferences. Well, let's deconstruct that for a second. And you're the perfect person to do this because you've spent some time in the industry you have a psychological background. Is there something about the demographic or something about the individual who works in human resources that makes it more likely that they'll get out of the house for a couple of days and lose their minds? Like, what do you think it is? I would love your armchair diagnosis. Okay, so off the top of my head, maybe we'll talk about power structures, right? So I think HR is largely perceived as and feels like the redheaded stepchild of an organization. They're a cost center and not a profit center. And people, they get portrayed unflatteringly in the media and things like this. And so I think there's not a lot of power in many ways in HR, even though I think, you know, gladly that's changing over time. So I think when you get let loose in the world, and there's no one else looking from other parts of the organization, you want to, you know, you want to let her rip a little bit because you don't have that power day to day. So that's, you know, off the top of my head, one, one thing that I think could contribute. Yeah. And so as you were speaking about the power differential, what I was thinking is that when individuals come together and they don't have any power and they all kind of sit around and talk about it, you think they would want to come together and brainstorm ways to be seen as leaders or to be seen as effective individuals in the workforce or want to tackle those issues around work, power, politics, and money. But instead, when women and mostly women come together in the world of human resources, they do a couple of key things. I don't know if you remember some of these events, Dan, but they drink heavily. They sexually harass the men, <laughs> the very few men who are there. And they generally just display qualities that would not be accepted in corporate America. And in fact, qualities that they would fire people for. So there's this real tension between the real world of human resources professionals at work and then the secret life of HR ladies. What do you think about that? 
Well, I think that's right. And I think another, you know, as I sit here and think about it, I think another piece of it is I started off my career working with young women with eating disorders. And one of the things that we very consistently found to be the case was that they had grown up in homes where they were denied food or there were rigid rules around food or, you know, sort of good and bad foods, no candy, this and that. And so many of them would, in the absence of being able to have something in moderation, they would begin to hoard it and, you know, stash candy under their bed and, you know, it led to a lifetime of weird eating patterns. Not a digression, I'm getting somewhere, I promise. So you you think about HR, who has to be the cop and sort of the ego and the conscience of the organization. They're the ones that are policing others' behavior. And so I think where a lot is asked of them when they get the opportunity to let loose, they, they do. Yeah, yeah, I see that pattern very clear, yeah. I wouldn't have hypothesized this before I had a foot in both worlds. But I also see a great deal more consumerism, sort of like wanton, obvious consumerism among HR professionals than I do among even investment professionals. Because I think in the investment world, it's like, look, we're all rich here. Let's not be tacky. (laughs) Whereas as in HR, again, because it's it's a group that has historically maybe not had that power, the people who do have some success in HR tended to show out a bit more, I think, than in other parts of my life. So yeah, it was an interesting world that was like hard partying, heavy drinking, lots of coach bags, as you've pointed out. I think it has to do with power dynamics and also the degree to which HR professionals are sort of pent up in the workplace. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you brought up the pattern of women with eating disorders, because I think when you have an industry that's 70% female, you're going to have a lot of family of origin stuff that just naturally comes to work. Like that makes sense to me. And I wonder if there's something about horizontal envy in human resources that really drives some of this negative behavior. So I don't know if it's the preening or the, you know, the peacock feathering or or whatever it is. But I remember to your point about consumerism going to these events and the French manicures were on display, the coach bags were on display and from women who were making 38 or 42 grand a year. Right. And who could not afford to demonstrate wealth. I, I mean, it was just on display in really weird... Your word tacky was an excellent word, excessive ways. When you go to cryptocurrency conferences or investment conferences, what do you see there? I know you've seen orange Lamborghinis, but what are other industries like? Okay. So the crypto conference I just went to is a whole nother story. But <laughs> was, you know, there was a guy... I'll just say there was an orange Lamborghini and there was a guy who ripped off his clothes and was wearing a wrestling singlet and nothing else. So I'm just going to tell you that and give you no further context because frankly, there, there was none provided. It was Yeah, just, I, I wouldn't imagine there is. <laughs> he just did it and I was never sure why. It wasn't an object lesson or anything. You see this though in racial and ethnic groups that have historically had less power, historically had less access to wealth. The research shows they tend to have a preference for sort of higher name brand recognition stuff. And so, you know, you look at families who are third generation wealthy and living on Nantucket, like they don't necessarily need a Louis Vuitton fanny pack because you're rich, we get it. You know, you don't have to have conspicuous or portable means of wealth. And again, I think that's something you see, uh, you, you you see in HR is because we're striving for that seat at the table, that voice, that recognition. And I think one of the easiest ways you can get recognized is to have someone look at you and go, oh, this person has money. It's easier to try and get it that way than to go about the more arduous task of breaking down systemic 
barriers, right? Yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me. You know, as a first-generation college graduate, a first-generation corporate employee, which is what I am, that conspicuous consumption and that show of wealth has been something that I've struggled with my whole life. Like, how do I differentiate that I've made it? How do I show the world that I'm not, frankly, white trash like my family? And for me, it's been a battle because I've married someone who came from a different socioeconomic class. His family is, in air quotes, further along than my family. And he is frugal. He's a saver. He's not in any need to show his wealth, right, at all. And it's been kind of this point of contention in our marriage. Like there are only, from what I understand, three ways to have any money in this world. You're born with it, you make a lot of it, or you don't spend it, (laughs) right? I mean, maybe there are other ways, but I don't know those ways. And for me, I came from a family. If you had five bucks in your wallet, you spent it, right? I mean, that's what you did. And so this tension in my life around saving versus spending, I mean, I'm with my HR sisters there. I want to show people that I'm a success in this world. And so it's funny that our conversation is going this way because while I mock it, I mock it because like Carl Jung, I hate it in myself. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, this is the this is one of the things I hate most about myself. You know, I'm from Alabama and I remember going to conferences and I would be, you know, giving a speech and be, you know, like, oh, Daniel's from Alabama and here he is to speak to us. And then, you know, people would line up afterwards to kind of roast your state. <laughs> yes. They'd come, hey, you know, nice talk. Why the hell do you live there kind of thing? Or, you know, oh, it was good of you to wear shoes or wow, you have all your, you know, you have all your teeth or something. And so my family and I moved from Alabama to Atlanta about three and a half years ago. And we bought this enormous house and did all this stuff. And we have regretted it every day since. I mean, Atlanta is a lovely place. It's closer to a good airport and things for work. But, you know, we we did the very thing I'm talking about, which is I wanted to show the world that I had made it. I wanted to not get sneered at anymore. And then you get there and you're like, oh, I'm still the same idiot I was yesterday, just with more bathrooms to clean. And Hey everybody, it's no secret that I love and believe in the future of human resources. More importantly, I believe in you. One way you can change the game for HR and for yourself is to focus on your continuing education. Ultimate Software sponsors free workshops around the country where HR leaders, recruiters, payroll professionals, and even consultants can earn free SHRM, HRCI, and APA credits. I've been to these Ultimate Software workshops. They're highly interactive, fun, and you'll learn a ton about the future of work in the world of HR. Visit ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW to learn more and to sign up for a workshop near you. That's ultimatesoftware forward slash LFW to find a workshop and earn recertification credits and stay on top of your game. That's ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW. And maybe I'll see you at a city near you. I think it's so funny, Daniel, how human behavior is so consistently bad across industry, across vertical, across gender, across race. We're all like in a race to the bottom or many of us are in a race to a bottom. And I don't understand. We have all of this good information. We've got your lovely books. You're a New York Times bestselling author. You speak to thousands of people a year and yet we can't get over ourselves. We can't change. And I know there's a biological imperative that makes us so weak-willed 
skilled and so flawed, but shouldn't we be doing better? Don't we have enough knowledge at this point in our lives to do better with our money, to do better with our choices, to do better with our behavior? Haven't we learned enough? Like, why can't we do better? Yeah. So one of the most disappointing things that I've learned is how very little knowledge matters when it comes to human behavior. So, you know, I'll use the example to begin with of my house. I have literally written books, multiple books on how spending a lot of money on a house is A, a stupid investment and B, a bad way to buy happiness. Because all of the research says you buy happiness by spending time with people you love, freeing yourself from tasks that you hate, like getting your lawn cut or cleaning your bathrooms or whatever. That's how you do it. You buy yourself freedom. You buy yourself time with the people you love. And buying a house is the worst way because, you know, what is at first this enormous, wonderful house that's so, you know, singular and special to you is two months later, just where you put your dirty socks. And so, (laughs) you know, so you quickly get acclimated to even a very nice house. So I've written books on this and yet I fell into the same trap. We started labeling food items with the nutrition labels in the 90s. And since that time, the level of obesity in the US has doubled and the level of morbid obesity has tripled. Mm -hmm. And so like now we know what we're putting in our bodies and we just don't care because it's, it's really not about knowledge. There's research that shows that Surgeon General's warnings on cigarettes make smokers crave a smoke. It's really, really not about knowledge and we're just wired all wrong. We've got brains that haven't changed in 200,000 years and are wired for immediacy at a time when we're living longer and longer and we have to take a longer term perspective and we're wired for what's going to feel good right now. What's the dopamine hit that I can get right now? And, you know, buying a big house or smoking a cigarette or whatever gets you sort of this instantaneous gratification and it gets you long term woe. And we haven't evolved to the point where we've synced our timelines yet. Well, this is depressing because the answer to most of our woes is to go out and buy books or to learn or to take mindfulness classes, right? We're trying to acquire knowledge and skills and competencies to improve our lives. But if we're not evolving or we're evolving at a very slow rate, we're never going to catch up with where we need to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And evolutionary time in our time, you know, a million years is nothing in evolutionary time. But, you know, you and I are going to live 70 or 80 years. It's uh, not much use to us. So the things that I've learned are, you know, two things. I think relationships matter. I think relationships, we are influenced by one another. And so if you surround yourself with people that you want to be like, that's awfully helpful. And the other thing I've found is that context matters. You know, I've written a lot about how simple cues like the music that they play in a liquor store influences people's purchase decisions. You know, if they play German music, people are 50% more likely to buy beer. They play French music, people are much more likely to buy champagne. And when you ask people who are leaving a liquor store, you know, why did you buy beer? No one goes, I was subtly tricked into it by the, you know, accordion music. So putting yourself in the right situations is a very big deal because we have limited willpower. The things we know aren't very predictive of how we act. So surrounding yourself with good people and being in good places is like more than half the battle. Wow. You know, back in the day when I first met my husband, we had this ongoing discussion around money and management and behaviors. And I would make the case in my uninformed, you know, post-college ways when I was 22 years old, that there was no such thing as free will. 
that the market was always out there trying to erode our ability to make informed choices. And he, being a scientist, would say, Lori, that's not science. There is free will. I wonder where you fall into this, Daniel Crosby. Do we have free will? Can we make choices that are independent and good choices? Or is the market consistently eroding what's in our best interests? So I believe in a less strong form of free will than I did 20 years ago. The things that I've learned have made me less of a believer in free will than I used to be. Now, I do think sort of philosophically, there is a place where if there is no free will, you run into some thorny philosophical problems because if there's no free will and someone murders someone and yeah, it's, yeah. and you know, and the world is totally deterministic, then you basically can't take any credit for your successes and you can't really blame anyone for their failings. I'm not like all the way to just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not all the way there. I still want to put murderers in jail. Yeah, um, fair, fair. Totally. <laughs> but I will say there's research like the silly liquor store example, but even, you know, the type of music they play on the subway uh, dramatically Im- influences acts of violence. And, you know, I mean, it's just, you read all this stuff, you read about our biological reactions. Sometimes your body is beginning to have a physiological response to a stimulus milliseconds before your brain thinks it. And so it does begin to erode at this notion of free will. So I believe in it less strongly than I once did. I think I used to, in my youth, just be like, look, you know, Victor Frankl, there you are. You can choose your, yeah, your you know, right. you, can, you can choose your response in, in any situation. And I still love Victor Frankl, but I don't believe in it as strongly as I once did. Well, that's interesting because it leads me to a question about the people in power. And we're back to HR ladies who do have some power at work and some responsibility for people's employment experiences, their daily interactions at work. What's the responsibility of people who are in power to take this seriously, to know that? The human brain isn't as evolved as it needs to be. Should we be designing better employment experiences? Like, like what's the role and responsibility of people in power? Yeah, I think, you know, we started off the segment joking about debauched HR conferences, but I really am a believer in the power of HR and and organizational development and leadership development, all sort of HR adjacent functions. And I really do believe there is a big business benefit to these functions. And I think that folks in power would be wise to give them a little more power and give them a harder look. And that said, I think we need as a profession or HR needs as a profession to rise to the occasion and become increasingly scientific. One of the things that drove me from the world of leadership development was that I just found it rife with platitudes. Like I felt like we were just operating in this sort of unscientific, rah-rah, nonsense, motivational speaker world. And it just... Napoleon Hill of everything. Yes. So you can think it... It can be, absolutely. Yeah, like everything was kind of the secret. And I found the whole thing kind of vapid. And I know that's that's not true of everyone. I know there are no. people that are doing deep work and, and are highly analytical in that space. So that's not true of everyone. But there was certainly a good deal of that. And so I think that as HR and adjacent functions get more into behavioral analytics, a deeper understanding of people and speak the language of business increasingly, I think that they'll gain more credibility. And I think that leadership will be wise to listen to them because there's so much power there in the way that people are trained and the way that they're treated. There's so much power there. 
Well, Dr. Daniel Crosby, it's always a joy to talk to you. You know, I'm a fan of your book called Everyone You Love Will Die, but I know that's not the book that you're promoting right now. So tell us a little bit about this last book that you wrote and what's in it for an audience of people who care about the world of work. So Everyone You Love Will Die is still my favorite book I've ever written. It's so, <laughs> so great. So thank you very much. But yes. um, the, the new book is called The Behavioral Investor. You are the first to hear this that I'm not married to. And it just got named the best investment book of the year. So just found Whoa. out about that. So very, very, very Congratulations. excited. Yeah, yeah that's you. amazing. Yeah. So the thing that I think people in your listeners will take from it is there's a lengthy discussion in the book about the four primary types of decision-making errors that we make. And a lot of it is granted in the financial context, but I think it has widespread applicability. And I think we carry these cognitive biases, these decision-making errors into the world of work. And so I think that your listeners would enjoy it on that front. Well, we'll make sure to include a link to the book in the show notes, along with Everyone You Love Will Die, because again, that's like my favorite book ever and a book that I've given away at the holidays to children in my family. And my cousins and my siblings have looked at me like I'm insane. <laughs> I've really enjoyed spreading the word about that. So Daniel, thank you so much for being a guest on Let's Fix Work today. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. And everybody stick around. We'll be right back right after the break with more Let's Fix Work. All executives need to be podcasting. Podcasts are the number one way for executives to create an authentic and trusting relationship with employees and potential customers. That's why my producer, Danny Osmond, just did a three-part series on why executives should be podcasting. Want to give your company a brand or a face? Want to connect with current or future employees? Are you interested in pivoting out of your current position and into a new career or personal brand? Well, if you're an executive who is podcast curious, head on over to Dan dannyosmond.com forward slash executives and learn how a podcast builds credibility, how podcasting gives you a leg up against the competition and how a podcast can power a speaking career and help you write a book. Don't worry about finding the time to listen. Each episode is less than 10 minutes and Danny has put all three episodes in one place. Head on over to dannyosmond.com forward slash executives to listen and find more resources. That's dannyosmond.com forward slash executives. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Dan Crosby. Here's something you don't know. He's a hardcore punk rock Mormon psychologist. Like, he was in a rap punk band at one point in his life, and now he's a father of three and a noted best-selling author. There is hope for all of us. So I hope you pick up a copy of his book, The Behavioral Investor. You can find a link in the show notes, and you can find it on Amazon. And I'd like to thank Ultimate Software, the underwriter of Let's Fix Work, for another fun and interesting episode. Be sure to check them out at ultimatesoftware.com forward slash let's fix work for information on HR workshops all over America. Let's Fix Work was recorded in Raleigh and Atlanta and produced in Nashville by Emerald City Productions. Danny Osment makes the show sound so great and I really appreciate him. And if you have feedback for me or for Danny or for anybody, you can send it to me or hate mail if you're an HR lady at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for today and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.